Welcome to our special second dispatch podcast of the week. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, joined by Steve Hayes and our own Tom Jocelyn, who writes our vital interest newsletter about foreign policy. This podcast is brought to you by The Dispatch. Visit thedispatch.com to see our full slate of newsletters and podcasts, and make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. Today, we'll talk China, and Tom will break down what they mean by discourse power, the Afghanistan peace deal, what a Biden administration might mean in our foreign policy. And we have a special appearance by my cat at some point, and some discussion about James Bond versus Jack Ryan. Let's dive right in. Today, we have, along with Steve Hayes, of course, special guest Tom Jocelyn, who writes the Vital Interest newsletter for The Dispatch. Tom, we're pumped to have you with us today because I don't feel like you get enough attention from all of us. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You're writing this incredible newsletter. It's uh, long and detailed. I learn stuff from it every single time I read it. It's like, you know, I have to like crunch through it. Like I have to concentrate and and it's good. It like makes my brain, scratches it in new places. Uh, How did you get here? Where did you come from? <laughs> well, well, I appreciate that. I appreciate the praise for the newsletter. I tried to work on these complex issues and hopefully make don't make you scratch your brain too hard, but I definitely am trying to challenge people to sort of understand what's going on. And I'm spending a lot of time reading through source material to try and distill that for people to figure out, you know, sort of these how these complex issues maybe affect them. Um, I actually, I've known Steve since 2003. Um, I was a nerd uh, running these very large uh research projects for an economic consulting firm. Uh, to be clear, Tom remains a nerd. I am still a nerd. I'm, I'm a proud, <laughs> proudly a nerd. Um, that's true. Um, and uh, I started emailing Steve about some of his writings and some of the stuff he was working on and sending him these detailed research memos out of the blue. And he was wondering uh, basically what the heck was going on and why this random person in New York was sending him stuff. And so we started talking and then he got me writing for the Weekly Standard and I sort of took off from there. Um, basically I, I started off in doing counterterrorism research. I became obsessed with Al Qaeda and jihadism after nine 11 and basically put my research brain, which I was using on economics and related projects, uh, onto this and have been obsessed with it ever since. And so I sort of built my own independent career, as uh, sort of an entrepreneurial endeavor doing this and, and have a long sort of history now in doing it. Um, I was, uh, at one point, and I hope nobody will hold this against me. But at one point, I was the chief counterterrorism advisor for Rudy Giuliani in the 2008 presidential campaign. Uh, that I've got a lot of stories from that campaign, which were uh, it was quite bizarre. But in any event, um, <laughs> any event, the world's only gotten crazier politically. But basically, as everything else is you know nuts and the world is crazy, I try and keep focused on America's enemies, and that's the point of vital interest. I've sort of used it to branch out from the prolific terrorism research and writing analysis I've done and the consulting I've done for the U.S. government and advisory work. And try and get into other areas, including on China and Russia and, and various other issues. So let me let me expand on on that story a little bit because I think this, I love the, the story of how Tom and I met. So I was working, I was doing a ton of reporting in the lead up to the uh, Iraq War, and then went over for um, three different times to to cover the war over there. And as I was do, I was particularly focused on Saddam Hussein and his long support of terrorism, any and all terrorism, including. Uh, Al-Qaeda and other jihadists. And I would write these pieces uh, based on talking to intel officials and, and others. And then I would get an email from Tom, basically a memo that would say, hey, that's really interesting. I, I liked what you wrote there. You should look at this. And then I would go look at this. And invariably, it was more interesting than what I'd just written. And then I'd go and write <laughs> about that. And then I'd get another email and he'd say, you should now look at this. And I went and researched that and asked my Intel sources about that. And Tom just just knew all of this. So at one point, I just finally said, really, you should, you know, look, I I love sounding smarter than I am because I'm using your material. (laughs) But I I really would prefer it if you would write this stuff for the Weekly Standard. So he started writing for us and we collaborated on a number of projects and and articles longer. I was I was doing that, by the way, as I was still working in the economic consulting world. And that was a little bit awkward when I'd have uh, high priced lawyers email me and say, hey, is this you? 
I mean, it's the same, <laughs> same, same, same name, same, same uh, spelling. That's not exactly a common name. So they would say, you know, what are you, what are you doing writing for the Weekly Standard while you're running my, you know, two hundred million dollar research project? You know. Well, my so. favorite, my favorite moment of I think of all of our collaborations came when we I forget what the actual story we were working on was. It was some retrospective on on the Iraq War and something that we were learning about Saddam and. Uh, we were waiting. I'd tried desperately to get an advanced copy of a Bob Woodward book. I think it was, it might've been Bush at War. It was the one in the middle of the Bush administration. I think it was George Tennant's memoir, right? It was actually Could George have been Tenet. that. What, yeah. it, it, Tom would, Tom, if that's yeah. what Tom says, just trust <laughs> Tom on this. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it was coming out as books do on, on a Tuesday. Yeah, I took my and, lunch break and walked down and got it at Barnes & Noble. Yeah. Tom grabbed it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can probably tell you what he had for lunch. Mm-hmm. Um, he grabbed it and I called him after lunch and we were looking for you know three or four specific things what did tenet say about this particular mm-hmm. memo or what you know how was this described and i asked him a random question this is god's honest truth just you know series of random questions and in response to one of the questions he said something like oh that's at the bottom of page 253 i'm like what are you t- how would you even know that like the book hasn't the book literally hasn't been on sale for more than 2 hours at this point and he'd read the entire book and he knew like his mind just can catalog stuff like that, which is, as you can imagine, is tremendously useful when you do the kind of things that Tom does. So we would have these elaborate conversations about, you know, meetings that took place between jihadists in different times. And Tom would remember the, the meeting, the date, the time, if it was available, who else was there, how they got there. And he just this is all this all lives in his brain, um, which is pretty remarkable. Well, I'm glad he's writing for us. I mean, this sounds like someone you don't want, you know, on any other side. Last, yes, last <laughs> point I will make just to, and, and Tom, I hope you're not blushing, but last point, uh, I, I had a conversation not long ago with somebody I'll just describe as a very, very senior U.S. government official who deals in these matters and has a really cool office. And this person said, um, the best, the single best analyst anywhere on issues of, you know, on, on the 9-11 wars, on jihad, on these kind of national security issues is Tom Jocelyn. And that included everybody in the, that particular building. So uh, that was really saying something. <laughs> uh, well, Tom, let's dive in. Let's, let's well, I, now I have this grandiose introduction here. Yeah. So no, no pressure or anything. You know? <laughs> we expect you to footnote yeah. the whole pod. Yeah. Um, uh, let's start really high level. Uh, you talked, you know, when you talked about how you think about your newsletter uh, about the safety and security of this country, are we safer than we were on January 20th, 2017? Um, probably not. I mean, the world is, you know, it, it's the problem is looking at the world now. I mean, it, it's sort of a cliche thing to say, and you hear these security officials say it, but it is, it is much more complex in terms of the threat streams that, uh, the intelligence bureaucracy that politicians and others have to think about and manage. And well, really bureaucrats are thinking about or the politicians aren't really doing much thinking about this stuff these days, as far as I could tell. Um, but you know, it, it, you know, it is a much more complex world than it is. I mean, if you take back, go back to nine 11, just let's go from there to now, um, you know, on nine 11, of course, the world was you Americans were shaken by those events. We sort of had this idea that we were secure at home here in the U S there hadn't been an attack on American soil like that. Really, I guess since you know, obviously Pearl Harbor, but even before that, the War of eighteen twelve, and sort of the the whole you know world came crashing down on us on that day, and we realized that this is a much more complex you know web of threats out there that we have to worry about. Since that time, it's that was sort of the jihadist threat or the Al Qaeda threat. Since that time, not only has the the threat of jihadism changed and morphed and evolved, but now you have these these other overlying threats from China and Russia and other actors you have to deal with, and on top of that, you have the cyber threats. You have, um, you know, just a whole range of issues now you have to deal with that really weren't present on 9-11. So now you have to look at the world in a very different way and think about and try and manage and figure out how you're going to go about protecting Americans from all these different bad actors. Well, in your newsletter this week, which I thought was particularly perfect, uh, maybe 
Again, let's not build up too much here. Okay, let's, let's, <laughs> it's something I had to learn this. I'm terrible at, at sales or any kind of things like that, right? <laughs> but there's something like setting a lower bar and then sort of clearing the lower bar, Fair. right? Let's not set the bar too higher. But yeah, I thought the news that it was yeah. really average this week, Tom. There we go. No, that's, maybe that's below good. average. There we go. That's better. That's now. not actually okay. what I said in my email to you, but that's good. No, we go above average. I mean, average is good. You know, it's like the George Costanza line. It's C minus. It's not falling behind, not getting ahead. You know, just sort of three one aim. You know. <laughs> I think it might have been your best. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> uh, it, it, you're talking about China in it, and uh, you're talking about a term, discourse power. And I think this explains so much about foreign policy today. And even looking back, foreign policy pre us really engaging with China, um, it's a it's what the translation of a Chinese term. I'm wondering if you can tell us more about the term, how it applies today, and sort of how we sit in this war over discourse power in some ways with China. Yeah, you know, it's an interesting thing that I learned from uh, reading the testimony and the work of true ch- uh, experts on China, uh, including there was this commission uh, they brought up during this commission hearing. Uh, I forget the actual name. I, now I'm letting myself down here. I'm forgetting the name, the actual exact name of the commission. But there was a hearing in, in April that where several uh, experts testified about this issue, discourse power. And I, of course, I was well aware of it before that. And basically, it goes back to this idea the Chinese essentially think that the rules of the world were established before they uh, had power, before their rise to power. The, the Chinese, the Chinese Communist Party, was sort of um, you know second tier or third tier power when when this rules of the game were set. And now that they've come into their own sort of preeminence, now that they've gained material power and have gained economic power, military power, and otherwise, they think that they should also have what's known as discourse power. And basically, the idea is that they not only get to help set the rules of the game, sort of international law, how the rules and regulations everybody abides by, but also be able to control the narrative and basically set the narrative. And what they say is that the U.S. and its allies in the West have been able to set the narrative for too long. Basically, what Americans say, that becomes how people view things or how they frame things. We want to have, be able to, to do that. We want to be able to tell people how to think about the world and the, and the issues that involve us and others. And so this discourse power goes beyond, it, it's sort of a blunt sort of um, power politics. They think that just by virtue of the fact they have this material power now, they should be able to also have discourse power. But it goes beyond the idea of facts, right? They're not saying that, okay, let's let facts or logic read the, lead the way. As Steve likes to talk about facts and logic, I'm sure you've heard his spiel on that a number of times, you know, in reporting and analysis. It's not about facts and logic for them. It's about purely the fact that they are who they are. They're now, they're not the small kid on the block anymore. They're a bigger kid. They should be able to sort of push people around and tell them how to think about the world. Um, and that's sort of how their diplomats are behaving. They, they call them wolf warriors, which is after these this pair of action movies that came out of China. They're sort of like the crude version of the 80s action flicks in America. You know, it's sort of they have their version of Rambo, their version of, you know, one of Arnold Schwarzenegger's characters who hunts down all these villains who inevitably they're answering to an American known as Big Daddy. And right now, for them, Big Daddy is Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State. That's sort of how the Wolf Warriors, the diplomats for the Chinese Communist Party view it. And they're gunning for him, and they're gunning for President Trump, and they're gunning for Americans in this back and forth. And sort of the point of my newsletter was, well, you know, that's fine. America has to stand up for itself in this diplomatic fight, but the facts are going to matter, or they should matter. And so whatever our diplomats are saying should be grounded in sort of real the reality and the real facts. Don't It can't just come down to this idea of discourse power. What, Steve? yeah, what, one of the big things that, that we've been discussing in this context, particularly with respect to, to, to China, is, um, you know, this great power competition, the role of international institutions. And obviously, there's been a lot of focus on the WHO, which I think, by any objective measure, has played a played a, a, a bad role at the beginning of this outbreak, at the beginning of the pandemic. And there have been, I think, serious questions raised about uh, Dr. Tedros, its leader, the role he's played, why he bends the knee to China in the way that he does. And you had the president, of course, suggest that we were going to suspend our funding and maybe withdraw from the WHO. My question to you is a simple one. Are we better fighting inside these international institutions to, to push against China and to try to help control those institutions and use them to uh, to advance our interests? Or does, is the president right? Should should we, whether it's the WHO or even the UN, some of the other, are we better off just saying these institutions are so broken we should bail? 
Well, two th- it's a complex question. I mean, two things. One, China's relationship with the WHO and its leadership early on is a good example, actually, of discourse power, um, because the idea was that China would say something to WHO and they'd repeat it, right? Instead of actually mm-hmm. just thinking about it and figuring out whether or not it's true or not. Yeah. You know, so that's that sort of speaks to the nature of the problem. The, the second thing is, you know, what I, I did a previous newsletter sort of critiquing the Trump administration, saying, look, you, you've got a point. The president has a point. Secretary Pompeo has a point that these international institutions are problematic. They need to be reformed or abandoned by the U.S., but you have to replace them with something. You have to do something in their stead. You can't just say, hey, you know, the WHO stinks. I'm taking my ball and going home. You know, the U.S. with the World, World Health Organization has been the number one donor of the World Health Organization for years. Um, and had an empty seat on the board of the World Health Organization from 2018 onward. And so, you know, it doesn't make any sense. To this sort of, it seems to me that Amer- the American government's behavior when it came to WHO was sort of the worst of all worlds. We sort of don't trust it or critical of it, but by the same time, we're the number one donor to it, and we're not going to actually exercise the influence that those donor dollars should grant us within the WHO. So we don't even fill their, I think there were like 33 or 34 board seats at WHO America was the only seat that was empty, right? Ours every was other, empty. Yeah. Empty. Every other every other seat was filled, including by obscure countries I never even heard of in Africa yes. and elsewhere, right? They had their seats filled and we didn't. The US didn't, right? So this doesn't make any sense. I mean, if you're gonna criticize WHO and you're gonna um, say, look, this this isn't the way we need to organize ourselves internationally, fine. I I agree. We need we need reform. But you need to do something to replace that. You need to actually exercise the influence you have or do something new, right? You have to then actually create something new. And the point is, is that it's very easy. It's very easy for me. It's very easy for any of us to criticize these organizations and say, you know, wag our finger at them. The, the difficult question is, well, what do you do instead? And the point is, is that I don't think there's really a serious conversation about that. And it's it's not just with the WHO. It's also with the Human Rights Council Commission at the, at the UN, which became the sort of cesspool. It's with other sort of places on the international stage where, look, China is looking to carve out these organizations from within. That's part of the discourse powers. They want to be able to sort of marionette these organizations with their new growing confidence. Um, but the U.S. has to answer that either by figuring out a way to counter Chinese influence effectively in these organizations or build something new. And I don't think there's a real robust conversation on any of that. So looking ahead, uh, you know, we, the president has been pretty, uh, well, actually, I guess he's been a little all over the place on China in the last few weeks. Uh, I call it scrambled eggs. I call it scrambled eggs. It's, it's the scrambled <laughs> eggs view of foreign policy. Yeah, no, it's it's uh, criticizing on the one hand and on the other hand, you know, sort of repeating WHO sort of level of praise for uh, Xi and others in the, in the Chinese party. But there's no question it's become a focus point. And where we go from here is a focus point. So today, for instance, uh, the chief Chinese envoy, Lighthizer, the Treasury Secretary Mnuchin, promised to, quote, uh, create a favorable atmosphere and conditions for implementing phase one of the trade agreement signed in January. Um, at the same time, the president is talking about putting pressure on some of these pension funds, the Thrift Savings Plan, which has $50 billion in an international fund, to exclude Chinese-based stocks and companies uh, to exert more economic pressure in the midst of everything that's going on. As you look ahead to America's options of putting pressure on China or even, I think some would say, punishing China for what we're all experiencing now because of the coronavirus, uh, what are the reasonable options? What are the unreasonable options? If you were advising the president, what would you tell him today? Uh, Well... (laughs) <laughs> I mean, look, I, you know, I don't, I don't know what you could tell the president today on these issues. He has his own sort of peculiar sort of understanding of these things. And I, look, I, I think President Trump has been more critical or um, skeptical of the Chinese at times than some of his predecessors have been. Um, I think that's warranted, quite frankly. Um, how he articulates that and, and views it, however, it often leaves much to be desired. And I, I'd like to take a step back for one second, because beyond what you're seeing here, I mean, something, this all sort of started percolating across the U.S. government before President Trump was even elected. There was this idea that great power competition was returning to the fold and was sort of going to be the, the, the central focal point for the U.S. government. And that sort of concept bubbled up at both the Defense Department, state and elsewhere and throughout the U.S. government, that basically the U.S. had not been paying enough attention to China or others, Russia and others, and that basically we need to reorient our foreign policy toward, toward that. And you can even see that in what President Obama was saying when he when he talked years ago about a pivot to Asia, right? That was the sort of the playing off the same idea. Now, in the newsletter, I've explained how that idea also 
there's a lot of truth to it. There's also this notion, however, that we were overinvested in the 9-11 wars and we can take our, our eye off the fight against jihadism now because we have to worry about China and Russia. And what I would say is that's self-serving for the Defense Department that doesn't want to really be in these wars and for others, that basically they the, the pivot away from the 9-11 wars has already happened. Most people don't even realize that about 20,000 troops are fighting in Iraq, Syria, and Afghanistan. Indo-Pacific Command, which is responsible for the Asian theater, has it's a combatant command, has more than four times the personnel of any other combatant command, including all, including CENTCOM, which is overseeing the, the fight against the jihadists. So these are the tectonic plates that are shifting here on, on, on this whole thing, this whole idea that we need to shift to great power competition. There's a lot of truth to it. There's also some, I think, some misguided or misunderstanding involvement. Now, on top of that, you get to the economic issues you're talking about, because that's an integral part of great power competition. And the point here is that there's really no consensus at all about what America's policy should be in terms of economics going forward. And even within your, your question, Sarah, you had a, there are actually several different issues even baked in there. One of them is the trade deal, right, which I wrote about the vital interest newsletter. Um, the trade deal um, was basically, again, was, was the Trump administration's, President Trump and his advisors attempt to sort of recalibrate the relate, trade relationship between China and the U.S., and a couple of things about that. One, um, I don't know if she'd be happy with me saying this, but my sister is about to move across country. And she she started to contract for a new house that she wants to build with her husband. And they got delayed in selling their house now on the East Coast. And so they basically couldn't, couldn't buy this new house or start construction right away. And the developer said to her when she came back several months later, about a year later, or several months anyway, um, said, well, the cost of construction now is $60,000 higher. This is what he said to my sister. And my sister said, well, wait a minute, why? And he said, well, Trump's tariffs, because the, the price for the sort of the raw materials we need are now skyrocketed because of the tariffs. And, you know, even if you want to put aside that anecdote, that's the truth of the matter is that these tariffs were used as a blunt instrument to basically force China, the negotiating table, and to recalibrate the relationship on trade. However, the tariffs don't work the way President Trump and his advisors say they work. A lot of times the costs are, are borne by Americans, including if my sister goes forward with that house by my sister and her husband. Right. But also on washers and dryers and other things, you can see the real material costs of these things have gone up over time. So the question is, you know, should we recalibrate the, the relation, the economic relationship with China? I say yes, we need to have that conversation. It's an enormously complicated issue. And the point is, is that the crude sort of tactics have been used so far by President Trump as advisors. They've gotten this trade deal with China after, you know, a lot of a trade war broke out. A lot of that cost of that are actually being borne by Americans, not by others. And the question is, when you go forward here, you're talking about how do we recalibrate that that relationship? The trade deal, as I wrote, of vital interest is, I think, good in terms of China admits bad behavior, essentially, in terms of intellectual property rights, stealing, you know, uh, these nefarious joint venture uh, schemes they have, other sort of issues. However, it's very short on, on enforcement and verification mechanisms. And as a former, a former economist who used to read a lot of contracts, when I don't see when I don't see the language that says, if you don't do this, then the penalty is this. When I don't see that language, and by the way, Steve, that language is not in the, the Taliban deal with the U.S. either. We'll get to that. You like anticipated yeah, yeah, right. by coming transition. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> but but the point the point is, is that this is a very long-winded way of answering your question, Sarah. But the idea is that essentially, if you don't get down to the specifics, you don't get let the nerds like me into the room to figure out what this actually is going to mean, right? Then then. What are you exactly doing? And I think it's very, I don't really have the answer right now. I don't know where this is all going to go from here. I mean, there's obviously a lot of pressure to decouple, to sort of change our, uh, you know, the, the supply chain management of the American companies need to get away from, you know, uh, Chinese source products. I think a lot of that's true. I think a lot of that, that that's accurate. Um, but how do you actually go about doing that without causing massive economic damage in the U.S.? Nobody solved that. Nobody has. I mean, I think, and I've, I've, I've talked about this before, but I think there's, the, the point you're making there is really an important one. And it has uh, a lot to do with the, the very unique way that the Trump administration runs. If you go back and you think about how policy decisions have been made going back, you know, decades, um, it's, it, these things are policy workshopped in the agencies by the policy analysts, by the specialists. They sort of build their way up to the interagency. They get included in speeches and then their policy and the, and the, and the president makes a decision. Th this was, I mean, the, the, the important role of the 
speechwriters in particular was laid out, I thought very well in, in Peggy Noonan's book, What I Saw at the Revolution, where she talked about how they were essentially the, the arbiters of what became policy, because if they could get the president to say it, it became policy. So they were, you know, in some ways, the, the key deciders or played a key role in that. With the Trump administration, that process has almost been flipped on its head. Because the president goes out, people have sort of general senses directionally of where he wants to be on some of these issues. I mean, Tom, you alluded to that. We know that he wants to be tough on China. We don't know exactly what that's going to look like, but we know that he wants to be tough on China. So the president goes out and says something, often in his ad hoc fashion, and immediately there's this scramble to determine what the policy implications are from what the president has said. And then you have all of these policy folks putting together something that resembles a policy to try to to make sense of this. And I think that's the difficult position that Lighthizer and others are in. I mean, I certainly don't agree with them on their broad trade outlook. I'm I'm much more of a free trader than I think anybody over there is. But that's a a challenge for them if they are doing it, retrofitting policy to the president's public rhetoric. Steve, can I actually jump in to ask you a quick question on what Tom just said about supply chain issues? Uh, We're at a unique point where Americans, I think, are more aware of supply chain issues than ever before. Uh, Do you think that the American public is ready in exchange for having less dependence on Chinese-based supply chain operations uh, to take some of that domestically, even if there's some cost. Such and a I good mean question. Cost, yeah, like uh, cost meaning literal economic yeah, cost, like but pay. also yeah, like uh, out of your you checking pay? account. Yeah, or it may be less convenient, yeah. or who knows? Yeah, so uh, it's a very good question. I don't know that we know the answer to that, but it's certainly the case that there's more attention focused on the rather unsexy but absolutely crucial issues of the supply chain uh, now than any time in recent history, at least in terms of the public's attention on that. And yeah, if if you look, there's polling on this that suggests Americans are willing to make those kind of sacrifices. The obvious question now, as I think we head into what probably will be remembered as a depression, is whether we even have that choice. Like, we don't have that choice. I mean, I think we, we, for national security reasons, it makes a lot of sense to, to do the kinds of things that we can to make ourselves less dependent on China in particular sectors. I would say in the, the medical sector, for sure, uh, to, to some extent in parts for uh, crucial national security interests and infrastructure programs. But I'm not sure we're going to have the, the freedom really to opt to pay more if we don't have, you know, if you've got 33 million Americans who are out of work, um, people having trouble eating a disrupted food supply chain here in the United States. I think we're, there's a lot of talk about doing this in the abstract. I think it will be hard actually to put it in practice while we're under such great economic pressure here at home. Tom, I mean, I mean, basically the way I put it is given, you know, I've spent before I started writing vital interest, the newsletter, I, spent several years reading up on China and the Chinese Communist Party, as Steve knows, is part of the reason why I would feel confident to start writing this. And I'm willing to pay more personally, uh, you know, based on everything I know now. I'm willing to basically try and decouple, uh, certainly in key areas, as much as possible. But I think Steve's exactly right. I mean, I, I don't know how that's going to translate to the broader economy um, and with the broader population and, and the double-edged sword that, that that is, you know, where you have working families, working-class families who then have to pay more, you know, at the grocery store or um, at Walmart for sort of, you know, day-to-day essentials. And I, I think that, you know, it's easy for somebody like me to, to slough off that increase in cost, but I don't think it's easy for somebody who's a blue collar, you know, family who's working to get by and, and, and scrounge to get uh, food on the table. It's not so easy for them. So I, I, I don't, I don't have, I don't have the answers for that, but I, I know based on my own understanding of the Chinese communist party, I think that, um, a lot of the America's policymaking was sort of naive about what was happening there and thought thought that I wrote this in one of the first issues of the newsletter, thought that basically um, economic liberalization was both necessary and sufficient to bring about political liberalization within China. Um, and the, the truth of the matter is it may be necessary, but it's certainly not sufficient. Right. Yeah, and, we, and, and that's and that's what we've seen now over the past 40 years. 
Um, so we can't operate under those rules anymore. We have to have a clear eyed view of what, what the Chinese Communist Party is doing from their wolf warriors to you know, on down, you know, and the whole gambit of, of challenges they pose. And those, that's a whole complex set of issues in terms of how America should respond to it without making the situation worse, but also not sort of um, being willfully blind to what they're doing. Steve, do you want to take us to Iran or Afghanistan? Let's next? do the, I'm very torn. Yeah, no, this is great. I mean, I think let's <laughs> let's take advantage of the transition that Tom teed up about contracts and, and language and actually how you compel uh, nations to, to act in certain ways and go to Afghanistan and talk about the um, the peace deal or the exit exit it. deal as we yeah, the withdrawal as we talk deal. about. Yeah. So, I mean, Tom, obviously very few people in the country have covered Afghanistan as closely as you and Bill Roggio have at Long War Journal um, and also for, for us. And you, I would, let me just ask you, is there anything that we're seeing in the two months, it's been a little over two months since the deal was signed. Is there anything that we're seeing out of the deal in those two months that surprises you? No. Um, you know, we, we said from the beginning that this wasn't going to be a peace deal. This was going to be a withdrawal deal. That um, the whole process, the whole notion behind these talks was based on Taliban apologia. This is an apologetic sort of understanding of the Taliban that presents it almost as if it's an innocent bystander to the original 9-11 war. Even worse, I, I mean, yeah. if I can jump in. Well, now, in some now cases, even worse because th- there was an argument made by senior Trump administration officials, including, I think, people who, who ought to know better, that the Taliban was going to be fighting alongside Americans well, that's the new, against that's, Al-Qaeda. Well, that's the new... That well, that's is the, fantasy. That's the new thing. When this all started, it started in Taliban apology that they were almost an innocent bystander. And I was going to get to that now Now the whole fantasy has grown to their counterterrorism ally. And that came from Secretary Pompeo and others who, who really got out on a limb, I think, historically speaking, for what they were saying the Taliban agreed to do. Um, the, the, the agreement, I encourage people to read the agreement. I've linked to it at Vital Interest Newsletter. I try and link to the source documents as much as I can, whether it be in the jihadi world or you know, dealing with China or dealing with any of these different issues. Because I think if you have time, reading the actual text of something is very important as compared to how it's reported. And, and this was four pages. So. Yeah, not even, three and a half. The way, yeah. I, the way I put it is if you've leased a car before or purchased kitchen appliances, you sign much more comprehensive paperwork than this, <laughs> this deal, right? And this is supposedly an agreement to quote unquote, end the Afghan war. Well, read, read the agreement and you'll realize how shallow it is um, and how vacuous it is. And there, there are no, basically the bottom line is the US put on paper that it was gonna withdraw. And, and let me back up for a second. First of all, folks, you know, I, I'm certainly critical of the way the Afghan war has been prosecuted. I get a lot of the criticism and I agree with some of it, right? Uh, what I would say is that even if all you want in the world is to withdraw American troops, even from Afghanistan, even if that's all you know is that soundbite, right? This deal was not necessary for any of that. You did not have to sign a deal with the Taliban to withdraw American troops at all. It was not necessary. So the whole idea is if you're going to do a deal with the Taliban, you better get something out of it. There better be some use to it, some utility for doing a deal as opposed to just withdrawing American troops. And there's not, there's nothing. There's no utility out of this deal. Um, it, it took place, negotiations took place entirely on the Taliban's terms. They locked out our Afghan government allies from the talks. They said, we're, the Taliban sat down from the beginning and said, we're not going to talk to you and the Afghan government. We're only going to talk to you because they see the U.S. as the puppeteer and the Afghan government as the puppets. And they knew that they could extract concessions from the U.S. without the Afghan government in the room and undermine the Afghan government's legitimacy. And that's exactly what the Taliban did while building up their own political legitimacy. And a good example of political legitimacy is that you have Secretary of State Pompeo became the first cabinet level official to ever go fly over to Doha or anywhere and meet personally with the Taliban, right? And shake hands with them and say, yeah, you're, you're basically an illegitimate uh, negotiating partner. And Pompeo, in the agreement that he and Zalmay Khalilzad, special representative for these talks, signed to show you how the legitimacy works, the Taliban – this all began under the Obama administration's effort for these talks. And it was the America has always chased them. We don't have time to get into the whole torturous history here, but America's always chased the Taliban for a deal, not the other way around. It should tell you something. Um, but under Obama, under the Obama administration, the Obama administration said, look, we're, we'll talk to you, but you can't refer to yourself as Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. Why is that? Well, Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan is the totalitarian regime the Taliban had in Afghanistan from 1996 to 2001 that the U.S. overthrew. And if they're referring to themselves as Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, it means they have no no desire for real peace because it means they just want to reinstall their nasty regime, their authoritarian regime in Afghanistan. And so 
The Obama administration broke away from talks in part because the Taliban insisted on calling itself the Islamic Emirate Afghanistan. When the, when the Obama administration allowed the Taliban to open a political office in Doha, the first thing they did was unfurl a banner saying Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan in Doha. And basically the, the Obama administration policymakers at the time said, you know, use some cuss words to, to express their disappointment because they realized they'd just been played. Right. Well, let's flash forward now the Trump administration's deal. And you can go to the text of the agreement. And what is all over this deal? Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. The Taliban refers to itself as Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan all throughout the deal. And the State Department, very clumsily, because the State Department was so desperate to have any kind of agreement with the Taliban, clumsily inserted this language that says that Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, which the U.S. doesn't recognize. Well, <laughs> yeah. And, and so all throughout the agreement, I, I don't know how many times this, a few dozen times, yeah. this language is inserted in there. And what does that mean? Well, the Taliban didn't give up its dream of re- resurrecting Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. The U.S. gave up its demand that the Taliban give it up, you know, and this is one of many concessions that went into this deal, which is a bad deal, which undermined the Afghan government, empowered the Taliban, and the U.S. really got nothing out of it. So can I ask a, a quick pointed follow up on that? You covered the Obama administration's negotiations with the Taliban in great detail. Um, is the deal at the time, of course, Republicans and conservatives were seeing the terms of the deal as they were reported in the press and saying this would be tantamount to a cave to the Taliban. Right. And President Obama um, didn't take that deal. And President Obama didn't take that. Deal. Right. Is the deal that the Trump administration made worse than the deal that the Obama administration contemplated? Um, I would say it's tough to say because we didn't have the actual text of the agreement that Obama turned down. Um, but I would say that uh, for all the reasons that that deal was deemed weak and deemed uh, unacceptable, this deal is the same thing. It's it's just as weak, if not more so, uh, basically. It's, it's at least as weak as what President Obama wanted to do. And it basically came, comes down to the U.S. Again, I think people should read the text of the agreement. It's, it's very strange the U.S. would get boxed into this sort of way of thinking about Afghanistan. But not only did the U.S. agree to a 14-month timetable for withdrawal, which, again, wasn't necessary uh, from Afghanistan, the U.S. also agreed, if you look at uh, Section 1, Part F, language that nobody's talked about, nobody's reported on, Right. The language says the U.S. will refrain from ever threatening Afghanistan militarily again after the withdrawal. Wow. So we're now going to pretend that there are no counterterrorism threats coming from Afghanistan that we need to worry about or neutralize to protect Americans. It's all now going to be on the Taliban to protect us. Well, that's basically the, one, of the, one of the 10 reasons Long World Journal exists is, and this is the website I run with my colleague Bill Rojo, is to document why that, that thinking is flawed. The Taliban remains deeply in bed with al-Qaeda to this day. Nothing in, out of this deal, despite what uh, Secretary of State Pompeo and Special Representative Zalmay Khalilazad have said, despite everything they've said on this and the way they've sold it to the American public, nothing in this deal changed that relationship. There's no break in the relationship. The Taliban hasn't done anything to al-Qaeda. I doubt very highly they will. Um, and the idea that you're, you're trusting al-Qaeda's longest ally to now be America's de facto counterterrorism partner seems to me to be a pretty disgraceful way to extricate American forces from Afghanistan. Sarah, can I jump in with one more question before we, just because I'm obsessing about this the way that Tom Tom is, there's another section of the agreement that hasn't gotten nearly the amount of attention that it, it ought to have near the end. I don't remember the section and the, the letter. You probably do, Tom. Um, but it leaves open the possibility that the United States will be providing resources to a Taliban-led government in the future, which yeah. if you stop and think about that is absolutely extraordinary. You think about the days, the years really after the 9-11 attacks when, you know, you, you had the, the Taliban actively supporting Al-Qaeda, working alongside Al-Qaeda, the, the, the leadership of the two groups were intermingled. This has been true ever since those attacks. It was true before those attacks. And still, still right this moment as we're still, speaking. Still true today. Right. And, you know, the, 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 um, the Bush administration mantra at the time was we will not negotiate with terrorists. And now here we are, less than 20 years later, not only negotiating Caving. with terrorists, capitulating, but, but strengthening Surrendering. the Taliban right. through those negotiations and yep. leaving open the possibility that we will be funding a government run by those terrorists. I just think people haven't quite gotten their mind around the, the dramatic change in U.S. policy with respect to the Taliban, that this deal sort of locks in. Yeah, no, the, the section you're talking about is at the end of what the the, the section that America says what it's going to do. And it says it's willing to basically provide economic support for a new Islamic government in Afghanistan. Well, 
what's a new Islamic government? And yeah. this is this is where you have to understand the perverse nature of all this, right? The Taliban has never intimated or indicated that they're willing to do anything other than resurrect the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, their own totalitarian regime. They've never said that they're willing to share power with the current Afghan government or form a new government with the current Afghan government. That's all been a fantasy by the peace processors who've been involved in this. The Taliban actually rejects that out of hand. It says we're not going to share power with puppets. So what does a new Islamic government in Afghanistan look like? Well, the only new Islamic government that the Taliban's going to accept is their government. Is their their you know people don't 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 know this or remember this, but you remember with the rise of ISIS, Abu Bakr al Baghdadi was known as the Emir of the Faithful, right? This is the the title that the Caliph, this would be Caliph of all Muslims, takes for himself and that his supporters gave him. Well, what is the title that the Taliban's Emir or leader has for himself and that all of his followers and Al Qaeda, by the way, refers to him as? It's the Emir of the Faithful, Abu Tulakanzada, the Emir of the Taliban is the emir of the faithful. Well, guess what? That's not a title that he's going to share power as some sort of delegate or a bureaucrat in an, yeah, exactly. an Afghan government or share power. That is the title of someone who actually thinks that he could one day be the emir of all the faithful, right? Um, and this is how all the jihadis in his orbit refer to him. So this is the idea that they're going to politically compromise on that, which is sort of the Taliban apology that's baked into the whole process is always been a fiction from the American side. And it's a nice, it's a nice little cat behind you there, Sarah. Well, anyways, you know, <laughs> uh, as I, we're recording this on something I've never used before called Squadcast or something. And there's the video footage where Sarah has a cat. This is now the third appearance of this cat, I think during the, the time. You know? Yes. So uh, he, he really likes the podcast time, yeah. by the way, the rest of the time he's napping, but if I'm taping a pod, he's right there. Yeah. To get up and meow in the mic. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yes, he's he's he he, he's loving on you. He's definitely enjoying himself during the podcast. <laughs> this is sort of a new new thing for him, I guess. You know, to be able to. You're a cat owner, so you know this. But like, if you try to get them to go away, it will make them meow more. So like, the best thing you can do is just sort of let them do their. Yeah, thing. I, I got a cat for my my wife and daughters wanted a cat, so I we got a cat for them. And uh, I'm not a cat person, to be honest. And I spend more time feeding the cat and attending to the cat than anybody. So, and the cat also uh, comes in. And I'll be asleep at 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 four forty five in the morning or five o'clock in the morning, and all of a sudden I'll hear a meowing as the cat is right next to my head, waking me up for his uh, morning morning feeding. So uh, I'm a very ha- he knows who his buddy yeah, I'm, is. I'm a very happy cat owner, as you can tell. So. <laughs> Uh, well, I didn't mean to interrupt. Uh, Zoo did mean to interrupt. Listen, the, you, but the, cat, the cat's much more enjoyable than Habatul Akhansada and the Year of the Faithful, that's for sure. So, <laughs> by the way, by the way, here's something for you. The jihadis are obsessed with cats. It all goes back to some sort of uh, mythology about the Prophet Muhammad loving cats. And so you, I have all these pictures on my hard drive of jihadis holding cats and posing with pictures of cats. In fact, there was this American who went from Florida to go blow himself up in Syria and his, his goodbye photo set, which went to his parents, had all these photos of him holding cats because it was all part of a stage thing. It's even it's more of, reason not to like cats. Yeah. As far as hey, I'm concerned. Hey, yeah. hey. Uh, how do you predict a Biden administration would be behaving differently if Biden were to win in the fall? What changes? You know, it's a good question. I don't know. I, I, um, I think there's a legitimate concern that there'll be some backsliding on China. I, I don't think the Trump administration has the answers, but I think that Biden has been over his career, uh, over his career, a lot softer on China. And there's some concern that maybe won't have the realistic outlook of the Chinese Communist Party that that uh, we need to get to in terms of where they are. Um, there's I think when it comes to various other issues in the jihadi world, I mean, Biden wanted to have sort of a counterterrorism posture in Afghanistan. He didn't want to do counterinsurgency when that debate was raging during the Obama years. Now, basically, even a counterterrorism posture is going to be out the window if, if this current uh, so-called withdrawal deal is, is adhered to. I don't know that he's going to reverse course on that. I, I don't know that he's going to say, oh, no, we really do need to stay in Afghanistan longer than this deal called for. I don't know that he would do that at this point. Um, and, you know, I, I think, you know, basically, I think my general view of the foreign policy world is it's not just that President Trump has a scrambled eggs approach a lot of times to his understanding and stuff. I think the whole the whole field has been the whole field has been upset on uh, over time. Um, there's not a really a common Americans don't have a common shared understanding of the world that we live in or the threats that we face or whether or not we should um, uh, or how we sh- or let alone how we should face them. You know, I mean, you can still see there's there's still quite a bit of debate about China. And believe me, you know, when it comes to China, for example, you know, I can't think of a, a quicker way to get a lot of Americans killed than to have some sort of land war in Asia. You know, so this is not something that I w- I'm pining for. OK, this is this is. That's the worst case scenario down the road, and we should want to avoid that at all costs. 
But all costs doesn't mean capitulating the Chinese influence on the world stage or undermining American influence, the, the Chinese Communist Party undermine American influence. That only will precipitate nastier conflicts down the road if America doesn't hold itself strong. And I think that's that's basically the big question for me is, you know, what happens here? The, the bureaucracy in Washington the, the, has shifted this idea of great power competition. Uh, it's not well defined, and nor does it understood exactly what that's going to mean in the long run. There, there are definitely things you can see the Marines doing, definitely things you can see the counterintelligence that ODI is doing, see things the State Department's doing. But whether or not we can maintain that and and build on it and improve it, most importantly, improve it, really remains to be seen. And I don't, I don't know that Biden has it in him now to to do that to improve any of that. I think he, he basically, I think he comes from a school of international relations that. Um, is often pretty weak. I mean, you know, I didn't see him piping up about the Taliban talks too often when, you know, basically America started to capitulate in, in that regard. So I, I don't I don't really see him as a somehow going to going to make America stronger in the long run. And do you think he'll go back to uh, the Obama era uh, Iran relationship? Well, they want to get into something like the JCPOA or some version of it, um, you know, with Iran again, certainly. And again, that deal was, you know, a good example of the deal where if America just makes a bunch of concessions, we expect the Iranians to, to be well behaved. That's sort of the that's sort of the the version of diplomacy that these the Obamaites and, and the people I would think would be working for Biden come from, you know, and what they'll say about somebody like me, for example, is, oh, you don't believe in diplomacy. I said, no, I, I strongly believe in diplomacy. We need diplomacy, but we can't have feckless, mindless diplomacy that starts with me walking in the room, giving you concessions. That's not the way diplomacy is supposed to work, you know, and that's the way it, it's, it's funny. We were just talking about the, the Taliban withdrawal deal. By the way, some of the same people who were, who were laid down the tracks for that withdrawal deal laid down the tracks of the JCPOA, which is the, the the Iran nuclear deal that Trump got out of. And so it's one of the bizarre contradictions in all this, one of the bizarre uh, you know things you, you can witness, or a nerd like me witnesses anyway, is that the Trump administration on the one hand is backing out of the Obama administration's deal with Iran when the same type of thinking and the same type of worldview and even some of the same personnel also laid down the tracks for the Taliban deal that the Trump administration goes full steam ahead on. So it's, it's a really bizarre word. that it's not, it's, it's less about the threats and more about just withdrawing. Right? And, I mean, and, that sort and, of gives the game away. And a scrambled eggs view of the world where you don't really have, you can't really put together a consistent picture of what's going on or even what's in the eggs. You know, you don't even really know, you know, it's sort of like, the, it's sort of, like, it's sort of like the bad hotel version of scrambled eggs. You eye it, you know, you're like, I'm hungry. I need a breakfast, but I'm not really sure what's in these eggs. That's sort of how I look at how people are looking at the foreign policy world right now, you know. This metaphor is making me hungry. <laughs> I'm, I'm ready to go make some eggs, yeah. <laughs> break some eggs and make some eggs. So I won't, we're running out of time. I don't want to keep you too long, but uh, I did want to get to, um, well, I, I, I've got about 50 questions I'd like to ask you about Iran. We'll, we'll save those, shelve them and, and ask you back at some point soon. Where we, we haven't talked at all about Russia. Um, where does Russia fit into this broad threat picture? It, it feels to me in part because of the the polarized debate that we've seen about Russia domestically here over the past few years, that we're having, to the extent that we're having a debate about Russia and the threat that Russia is, it's a phony debate because you now have Republican, I mean, this is reflected in, in lots of public polling, Republicans have shifted their views on Vladimir Putin and Russia dramatically over the past five, six years, where you now have more Republicans with a favorable view of Vladimir Putin than a lot of, I would say. Um, yeah, they've come close to the Dana Rohrbacher view. Uh, they they, they is, really which is, have. Which is really bizarre to watch. You know, I mean, Dana Rohrbacher is a congressman from California, now retired. He was very apologetic for Putin, uh, suspiciously so for years. I testified for him one of the 20 times I testified for Congress. I testified for him on his subcommittees. He had a bunch of questions, even though the hearing wasn't about Russia. There was a lot of Russia, Russia, Russia. Um, you know, very strange, very strange worldview, you know, and uh, yeah, no, they're, they're not in the Dana Rohrbach camp per se, but they've come closer to his view of things for sure, you know. And what, so, so how should we look, how should um, we look at Russia in, in the broader threat picture? Look, I, I, I don't think Vladimir Putin's changed at all. You know, if, if I could change this, this uh, computer, you could see I got a whole tranche of books on Putin and Russia now because I've been reading up on that for the newsletter as well, trying to distill that down into things that make sense. Um, a, a couple of things on that. One, I, I'm not certain that Russia is a great power. So we've talked a little bit about great power competition, the way Washington looks at it. And they, the great power competition usually means America versus Russia and China or China and Russia. I think Russia is a power. I don't think it's a great power. It doesn't have the economic might that China does. It doesn't have the, the sort of ability to influence things and play the soft power game that China does. 
Um, so I think it's a little bit different, but that doesn't mean I'm downplaying Putin or the, or what Russia is all about. One in particular, because if you can see in the newsletter, I've, I've sort of started, started to tease this. I'm going to do more on this. You can see that Putin has come to Xi's aid throughout the whole coronavirus pandemic. And you can see this, this relationship between Russia and China is pretty strong at the moment. And there's a lot to be worried about that the combination of the two then does make a real great power. Beyond that, uh, Russia is off, often a spoiler. They have a, they have a zero-sum game of the wor- view of the world and American power, and basically anything that's bad for America, they view as good for them. Oftentimes, um, you know, which is a bad deal, of course, for Americans. Um, Vladimir Putin is not uh, going to back off that. That's who he is. That's who he's been for decades now. And that's how he views the world. He, I do think, he thinks the fall of the Soviet Union was one of the great historical calamities. He's said as much, and I think that's definitely how he views things. And because that means that the Kremlin and Russia lost its influence and its power on the world stage, and he would like to reclaim as much of that as possible. I don't think he will be able to. I think he'll only be able to claim some of it. But you're going to see all sorts of problems arise with Russia uh, going forward. We already see them now in Ukraine. We saw them previously in Georgia. You're going to see you know, going forward, Russia is going to continue to press its case and try and enlarge the Kremlin's sphere of influence uh, through every way they can. And enlarging their sphere of influence means decreasing or depleting America's sphere of influence. And I think that's an important point that I think some Republicans are now missing. Well, I want to move to a more serious topic, which is as a foreign policy guy, would you say you're more excited about uh, James Bond as a character or (laughs) uh, Jack Ryan? Uh, Gotta be honest with you. Um, Pretty much neither, right? I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I, I don't know. Like I, I have. A, I have a, a a sentimental sort of affection for the James Bond series. You know, um, you know, there was there, there was that rumor was floated at different times. Idris Elba could be the next James Bond. I mean, that'd be fantastic. I'm, I mean, I don't. I don't know. Yeah, I'm very. I don't excited know. I don't know that. what's holding that up. You know, but uh, go, go, I, the only reason <laughs> I watched the series Luther on Netflix with my wife was because of you know. Idris Elba was in it. Otherwise, I wouldn't couldn't care less about it, you know, but he'd be great. Although I like Daniel Craig. I like like to do it. The Jack Ryan series sort of, um, I haven't watched that at all on Netflix. I think it's a show right on Netflix. I th- I watched the first series. Don't, yeah. don't. Yeah. Not great. Yeah. Well, I like John Krasinski. Yeah. Not great. They flip, they flip Venezuela, right? I read something where they flipped the socialist regime in Venezuela to being the yeah. good guy in the storyline. This is, this is yeah. if you want to know what motivates me and vital interest in my writing generally, it's that sort of moral inversion I can't stand. I just cannot stand it. It's like it's it's the same thing that bothers me when I see somebody say, "Oh, the Taliban's our partner now against terrorism." All right, no, no, you know I can't. This I, this I can't abide. You know, I, you know, I can understand the world's but original, you know, yeah, original Tom Clancy, Jack Ryan. I mean, well, okay, not... that's a different thing. That's the Harrison Ford Jack Ryan. Yes. I guess. yeah, yeah. I mean, that that there's a lot of appealing. It's a lot of appeal to that one. For I'm sure. still yeah. sort of a sucker for Jason Bourne. I gotta be. I mean, I'm not. A- uh. Action movies are not my thing at all. <laughs> Um, really, but go, in go that look genre, at the Wolf Warrior. Go look at the Wolf Warriors action footage. And, <laughs> I've and, seen that. Actually, there's a good, and you can see bring, that will that'll bring that'll bring you around. You'll love action this, movies. This, this is that. we're yeah. like bringing this full circle, yeah. like professionals would actually, because we're going back to China and we're talking about Hollywood and we're marrying all this together. There is a very good um, documentary that uh, the PBS NewsHour has put together. I think basically what they did was they strung together a number of individual pieces about China and the U.S.-China relationship uh, that they've broadcast over yeah, the years I've watched, and made I've, it about yeah. an hour and 45-minute um, documentary. It's very good, I think. And they, they talk about the Wolf Warrior. They've yeah. got they've got some of the footage in it and, yeah. you know, the Americans, the bad guy and, and the Wolf Warrior is yeah. the hero. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Tom. We appreciate your newsletter. It's called Vital Interest. Really encourage people to subscribe. And, uh, and I'm sure we will be talking to you again because I don't think any of these topics are going away ever. (laughs) Uh, Steve, last thoughts. Yeah. Thank, thanks, Tom. We're happy to have you uh, aboard. Uh, we consider vital interests, uh, vital reading and, um, look forward to more. No, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Talk to you guys soon. Thanks for listening.